spoiler alert. If you do not want this film ruined, do not proceed. There's spoilers galore. You have been warned. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me, the classic film podcast and movie club where I, Sarah Greenfield, your host and classic film enthusiast, bring in my entertaining friends to talk about classic movies or any other old-fashioned form of media that strikes my fancy. On today's show, we are talking about the film Meet Me in St. Louis from 1944 with my wonderful guest, Zoe Palco. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the show, Zoe Palco. Thanks for being here. I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> we are so happy to have you. Um, I almost wish we had recorded our first exchange about how we wanted to record this podcast yesterday, um, but something really great happened in America yesterday, so we we took the day off to celebrate, and now we are here. We are here. Just just that much more optimistic and, just, and, and less drunk than yesterday, so... Yeah. This is a better choice. <laughs> I think this was a very smart choice. That it was Zoe's recommendation. I said, yes, that's you're correct. That's a smart thing to do. Um, so yes, we are here to talk about the movie Meet Me in St. Louis, 1944, Judy Garland classic. Um, mm. Zoe is slowly becoming our resident musical guest <laughs> just because musicals are so much fun and you're so much fun and you oh. love to notice the sassy and snarky. So, oh gosh. Yeah. Exactly. It's how we love. Yes, it's how we love. And I feel like we're allowed to do it because we're fans. If we were doing it just to be mean, that's a totally different thing than being a fan of something and pointing out silly shit about it. Exactly. I'm right? not spiteful. So, <laughs> Zoe, what'd you think? Okay, so I will start by saying that I have felt that I have been a semi-imposter with this movie my entire young adult to adult life because as you pointed out how many times has somebody started singing meet me in st louis how many times has somebody like clang 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 like out of nowhere seemingly in context of what we're talking about but just comes up in conversation that probably is more of a theater thing so people who are not in theater they're like that's bananas but it happens people that happens <laughs> very often in my life still to this day and so I always went along. It's like, oh yeah, Klein Klein, Judy. And always knowing secretly in my heart that I have no idea really what this was because I had never really seen it. I thought I had seen it maybe in parts on like Turner Classic Movies when I was like nine or five, or I don't know. Cause I had little snippets I kind of recognize, but remembering is the wrong word. Like I remember zero from this movie. So I love the fact that I saw it finally, and I can honestly say, I get it. I get why everybody quotes these songs and is considered one of Judy Garland's hallmark pieces in her career. I get it. I'm in a very happy place knowing that I've finally seen it. And I, and it, honestly, it was not a disappointment. It lived up to it. Like big statement, thumbs up. Thumbs Yay. up from snarky Zoe, <laughs> who tore down Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. But like deservingly. Not the case for this one. I, I'm a fan. I'm going to watch this movie again just because it's fabulous. Well, and there is a difference between Seven Brides for Seven Brothers and this. Let's just <laughs> be real is. about that. So Thank yes, that, that's a big difference. Um, one of the reasons I picked this movie for this week, we were actually going to do this a lot later. Um, we were going to do this next year. <laughs> but <laughs> in America right now, or the United States, I should say, because 
you know, there's more to America than just the U.S. We had kind of a rough week in terms of it was very stressful. Like we had a very big election going on here. Um, The results weren't shown right away and it was a close race and there was a lot of intense, like just a lot of intensity happening. Um, Like no one could relax. No one could rest. We were like worried about the future of our country. And it was my cousin coined. I, I don't know that she coined it. She told me she used this phrase, nauseously optimistic. And that was the feeling of the week, I would say. So I picked this movie because I knew it would bring us joy and it would just be like fun. And the reason this movie was such a hit, it was the biggest hit for MGM in the 1940s. I should do the movie plot summary first, but I have to tell you this. It was the biggest hit. It came out during World War II and it was a nostalgia musical. And the whole theme of the musical, of the the movie is... um, Everything that you want and need is right around you. Like family matters, like love matters, your home matters. So it's like this real appreciation of what's in your own backyard. Like that's the whole point of the movie. And so people during World War II were clinging to that. You know, they really needed that nostalgia, comfort. And this movie takes place in 1903. 1944, that would have been like, oh, remember our beautiful, like, rose-tinted past? Like, how we are looking at the 80s today and we consume 80s media like it's nothing? Like, that's how this would have been. Just comfort food for the people of that time. This is their Stranger Things. Exactly. Um, So the movie, Meet Me in St. Louis, is um, about, it's set in 1903. It's, It's based on a series of short stories written for The New Yorker by a woman. And that's why I was like, of course, everything good is written by a woman. Sally Benson, she's the one that wrote for The New Yorker, and she wrote these, like, vignettes of stories, and that's how this story is told. So it opens, and we see a beautiful painting of a Victorian home in summer of 1903, and um, it looks like a Norman Rockwell painting. We kind of zoom in, and there's family running around, and there's, like horses and a delivery person and like the muddy And a couple of kids on a beer wagon. And a couple of kids on a beer wagon. Um, So it's just, you know, fun, old fashioned. We get the mood immediately. We meet the whole family through the scope of the kitchen and how they react to ketchup, which I think is great. Um, This story is the story of this family, the Smiths, the most basic generic name they could think of. So it's about the Smiths. They are a large family. They are a loving family. The son's going to go off to college pretty soon. The daughters are like in high school and quote unquote like of marrying age. And um, there's two younger daughters as well. And the two younger daughters were like very into the macabre, macabre. They loved like, you're a drunken ghost. Did his eyeballs fall out? I'm going to kill you. They like saying shit like that. Um, But it's funny. And their grandpa lives with them too. And he's like this well-traveled old gentleman. Who has 20 guns in his bedroom, which I very much appreciated. Why do you have that many guns, sir? Just thrown in there. I'm like, oh, God, grandpa. So yes, it's about this family and their journey through the different seasons. And at Halloween time, their dad comes home and he's like, guess what? We're leaving St. Louis. But the family loves St. Louis and they can't stop talking about how the World's Fair is coming to St. Louis next year. And the dad's like, we're going to New York. And the family's like, we don't want to, but we love you. So we're doing it. And then they don't go. (laughs) And that's the movie. My husband, which I make fun of him for this all the time. He famously, he's an actor too. He's a director. You know, he's in that whole world. So I don't want to say this and imply that he has poor taste because he doesn't. And he understands art and everything. But it is the running joke that he hates old movies Like anything before 1970, like he has no time for. 
he thinks they're boring and like has no point. He's not a fan. He falls asleep. I can't get him on board. I've tried. It's very sad. We are a divided household. And he's like, oh, so like, so what do you think of it? Is it, you know, is it like the boring movie where it's about this family that nothing really happens and they talk about stuff and then they don't do it and then it all ends up being nothing? And like, I couldn't say no, because that is what this movie is, but it's amazing. And I tried to explain that to him, but it was just so funny because he was like, oh, is it? And he laid out the exact non-plot of this movie. But I loved watching every second of it. Well, yeah, it's such a delight. So this movie was made in the 1940s, set in the early 1900s, but we still today as a modern audience understand that family dynamic. They show a family dynamic so beautifully and so like honestly to what real family dynamics are. There's like a familiarity and a comfort in all of that. We know that kid thing where it's like kids saying gross, weird stuff. Like that's everybody. That's everywhere. That still happens. Like, you know, just it feels like a familiar family that we would know today. It's got that vibe, that timeless kind of vibe. Although I should again mention, as I must always mention, there is no diversity in this film. They never say anything disparaging about religions or races. There's never like any animosity towards people who are not white, but there are no other people that are not white. It is only white people. There's no test to that because they never encounter anybody different than themselves. The grandpa is the only person who is well-traveled. The only person that is other, I feel, in the entire movie is the Iceman because he's in a different class. Oh, yes. He's not a person of color, but at least he's a different class. Like he's a working, like he's not upper middle class living in a giant Victorian home. Like that, you know, that's not his life. So I feel like that's the only person that I can think of that's not very much like them in like living in their neighborhood. We don't really meet too many people outside of their circle anyway. It does focus a lot on just the family. Um, I actually want to talk about, I love the device they use when we meet the family. I had mentioned it earlier. The family is making like their stock of ketchup for the season. I don't really know how that works. Like, I guess you grow your tomatoes and then you make your ketchup and it lasts a year. I love it. Like, it works so well because it makes me want to make ketchup now. What? (laughs) People made ketchup back in the day. They must have. That's adorable. Too sweet? Too spicy? I can make mine super vinegary because I like vinegar. I mean, it's that's how good this movie is. is how I <laughs> the options are limitless. Um, I would prefer to just keep purchasing my Trader Joe's ketchup. They make a very good ketchup. But I see where you're coming from. They do, um, every time we meet a new character, what we learn about them is their relationship to the ketchup. It's like um, a new family member will come in, taste the ketchup, and go like, it's just right. Another person will taste it and they'll go, it's too salty, or it needs to be this, or it needs to be that. And I wrote down what each thing says about the person. Hold on. Um, Yeah, because I was like, yeah, this is a thing. So the mom tastes it, and she thinks it's great the way it is. And they're like, oh, the mom's caring. She's thought, and she mentions, like, my husband likes it this way. She's thoughtful. Um, Katie comes in. She's, like, practical, skeptical of men. She tastes it, and she's like, it's too sweet. And she adds whatever the hell she adds to it. Vinegar, I think, right? Yeah, Um, probably. Lonnie, the older brother, comes in. He's like, it needs to be more spicy. And you're like, ooh, Lonnie wants some adventure in this world. Youngin'. Yep. Then Agnes comes in. She doesn't eat the ketchup, but she's a younger girl, probably about 10, And she comes in in her underwear and totally drenched from going swimming and puts on her grandpa's shoes and walks around the house. So you're like, ah, this is a fun kid, not a proper lady. She won me over right away. 
she introduces us to the song meet me in st louis which is going to be important to the whole film because they sing it throughout and it's like the mascot of the film yes she introduces us to the grandpa he starts singing and skipping we know he's a light-hearted fellow we see his room we see that it's full of like things from traveling the world he's got all those hats from all the different places and the sabers on the wall like and apparently 20 guns so those are somewhere. And then we finally meet the star of our film, Judy Garland, Esther, who like comes in. She was just playing tennis with her friends. Not a drop of sweat on her. And she tastes the ketchup. I don't know many girls who would just come back from playing tennis and immediately go like, oh, that boy next door that I'm totally in love with who hasn't noticed me at all. I totally want him to notice me right after I play a competitive sport. Hard pass. I looked like a gremlin monster after playing tennis and ice school ain't no boy gonna look at me after that you're not wrong i was thinking that that it's the middle of summer and she has not a drop on her her hair is perfectly perfectly straight and i do want to mention the first time i saw this was um early in high school i was probably 14 when i saw this and um straightening our hair was a big deal back then and i kind of had like fluffy hair in the back back then and i remember watching this and being like that's the hair i want i want my hair to look like that in the back i still do but i remember admiring that and just being like that's it that's the hair judy you've got it and now we know of course it's a wig all I was going to say about the ketchup thing, so I can tie this back in later, was she tastes the ketchup and says it's too sour. So we know that she's sweet. So we learn everything about them through their ketchup taste. And I was like, that's the smartest freaking movie device. Way to go. And the other sister doesn't taste the ketchup because she's buying shampoo. She's into beauty and that's a thing and she's responsible. And then the dad is, he's a grumpy puss and he doesn't even taste the ketchup. One of the things I was curious about when they did sit down to dinner and they were serving the soup, I was like, are they serving the ketchup as a soup? Is that what this is? Like my mind was blown. I like couldn't concentrate. I had to rewind it because I was not concentrating at all on what they were saying. So I'm like, are they eating ketchup for soup? This world is madness. I think it was the same props for sure. So yeah, I really love this movie. There's so many things to like get into. The costumes, the look. I do want to say this is Judy Garland's like first real adult film hit. Like she had been trying to get people to see her as an adult for a couple of years at this point. And finally with this film, she's 21 years old. Let's just talk about Judy. Judy Garland, Frances Ethel Gum, one of the greatest movie stars and singers of all time ever. And she's wonderful and we love her and she's fantastic. I was Judy Garland for Halloween, so I'm on board. What with Judy. era Judy Garland? When was this? That was my come on, get happy with the suit coat. With oh, the okay. I vaguely Almost remember no this. No one got it, but those who did, I tip my hat to you. you That's a great you know costume. I don't think I was there, but I, I would have gotten it. You would have gotten it. You were not there because you would have. You would have been the one of the few. <laughs> it's like Kyle got it, Andrew got it, my husband did not get it. It was great. I mean, he probably liked it, but he didn't get it. He was a fan. I think he appreciated me not wearing pants. Uh, so Judy Garland was, as we all know, a child star. She had one of those stage moms. She had like a Mama Rose style stage mom who had her daughters in like a sister act. They were the Gum Sisters. Judy's real name was Frances Ethel Gum. And they used to sing in vaudeville. And a talent scout for MGM saw them, but the act fell apart when the older sister got married. And so at that point, Judy was like 13, and they were like, we like her voice. She's the star. She sang Zing Went the Strings of My Heart, which was like a big deal for her when she was a kid. She sang that song a lot, and it was a song throughout her career. So um, they picked her out, and the sisters had, at that point, I think, changed their name to Garland because they kept getting made fun of for their last name being Gum, which makes a lot of sense. They changed it to Garland. There were various stories about why. 
Um, I don't need to bore you with those. A lot of people take credit for naming them Garland, and I'm like, doesn't even matter. Uh, Judy also chooses her first name after a Hoagie Carmichael song. There was a hit he had named Judy, so she was like, okay, I'm going to be Judy Garland. It's a good name. So she's 13. The studio signs her. They don't know what to do with her. Because she's too old to be a child star, she has this amazing voice. They know she's, like, bankable, but they don't know what to do. She ends up doing this short film, which I saw on TCM when I was a kid, called Every Sunday. So it's this short film that serves as, like, a sort of screen test for both her and Deanna Durbin, um, who was another, like, her age kind of star that was an opera singer. So Deanna does, like, opera, and Judy does, like, scat. And they work together, and then they both get signed, yay! Or they might have been signed before that, but, like, this was the thing where they're like, okay, we're going to use her. They do a lot of stuff with her where they make her feel like she's ugly. Like, she's the ugly duckling of MGM, so she always kind of feels like she's not beautiful. They put fake, like, caps on her teeth that are removable. They put these, like, discs in her nose to reshape it. My God. Yeah, and they are really um, harsh about her weight. So they, like, don't let her eat. <laughs> they give her almost no food. And I remember on TCM, I think when I was watching this Every Sunday thing, they were talking about how um, there was, like, a Christmas holiday float for some reason. It must have been a Christmas parade, but um, they had been starving Judy, and they let her on that float, and there were candy canes, and they said she just started eating the candy canes because she was so hungry. And I was like, oh that's God. the saddest. That's so Oh, my sad. God. So yeah, oh, she so and then they would give her drugs ever since she was five years old. Her mother and the studio would give her drugs to wake her up in the morning and put her to sleep at night. And she ends up dying pretty young of a drug addiction because she had been Shocking. on drugs her whole life. Like, yeah. Anyway, so it's a, a tragic story. And she does feel like her childhood was robbed is something she says later on. But anyway, so she, she does these roles where she's like a child but not. So we've got The Wizard of Oz. We've got her with Mickey Rooney and Babes in Arms and Love Finds Andy Hardy. That's what she's done. She has this girl next door image. She wants to break it when she's older. And this is the film that actually does it. Because, yeah, she does like presenting Lily Mars. That sort of works. Nothing is great until this. And the reason I was getting to this was this was the first film where she found um, her like makeup artist slash like true person who would be there for her um this woman named Dottie Pondell or I think it's Pondell I think that's how you pronounce it I just love how her first name is Dottie and right? she was a mentor to Judy like that's just I mean that just feels like it she just... sees Judy she tells her girl you're beautiful you don't need to put these caps in your teeth you don't need to put that stuff in your nose let me show you how beautiful you are and she does this is Judy's like I think that this is Judy's most healthy-looking movie. She never looks as healthy in certain films. To me, this is like picture of health. She's super joyous in this film. You can tell she's having the best time. And I thought it was interesting. I like briefly looked into the movie or whatever. One thing that I found out is that she totally married the director. She was completely in love. She looked healthy. She was like, she finally got the role she wanted to do. She was in love. She was singing these wonderful songs. And you can tell, like the movie is a joyous movie. And I think that's a big reason is because Judy was freaking happy, maybe for like the first time in a really long time. So it's, it's like really, that makes me smile. Margaret O'Brien, who's the little girl in this, who it should be named, got second billing after Judy Garland. So Judy Garland is the star of this film, and then it comes Margaret O'Brien, who was seven when she made this. Completely deserved. She was brilliant. She was great. Absolutely stunning. 
that was the kid part. Like little Zoe as an actor in small town Ludington, Michigan. Like that's the part that I wanted to play as like a little British nerbiter little girl. Like that, she was wonderful. Oh God, every scene with her in it is just so- They steal it. Yeah, she's great. We're going to get to her. They asked her about uh, what it was like to work with Judy Garland. Because, you know, all the stories about Judy Garland, like, she's late, she's high, whatever, whatever. Um, But she was like, honestly, it was lovely. One, because she wanted to make sure that I was being treated better than she had been treated as a kid, which I was like, oh, my God. Um, And then, two, she was falling in love. Like, you are watching her fall in love in real life. She's singing The Boy Next Door, but she's falling in love with Vincent Minnelli. So, yes, that's all I wanted to add. But, yes, Margaret O'Brien, please give your Margaret O'Brien aria. Finding a good kid actor is incredibly difficult. And I feel like we're kind of in a renaissance of that right now. Like, in a lot of shows that I'm watching, the kid actors are really good. We mentioned Stranger Things, like, yeah. really briefly, randomly. But, like, all those kids are so good. The kids yeah. that were in the new version of It, they were so good. And yes, they were older than what she was in this movie, but she has range, which I was really impressed by. She was given a lot of like heft to work with too. So it's also in like the screenwriting of it where they found this young child actress who can be precocious, but also comes off really intelligent. Like I imagine that's not an easy thing to pull off that she did. Um, I agree with you completely. There's one moment that does ring fake to me, but makes me laugh. So I want to call it out. It's the Christmas scene where Judy's about to sing, have yourself a merry little Christmas. And she's says something to her and she has this laugh that is the most fake child creepy maniacal laugh and I love it so much like I will rewind it where she's like ha 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 like oh my god that's great that's really great director is like oh god that wasn't that great but the take was good so it's fine we can it's cool she's given a lot of responsibility and she rises to it like the when she has her own two songs yeah and she doesn't have like the greatest voice and it doesn't matter because it's not about that it's about a family moment a big sister and a little sister putting on a show. Like, we've all done that, at least us theater kids out, where you create choreography and you're like, it is my birthday party. Please let me show you this dance to the Lion King that I have worked out with my friend down the street. Like, that's very yep. much what this moment was. She um, won an Academy Award for this role. They made a special, like, child Oscar for her because of this movie. Totally deserved. Yep. Um, and it's oh. funny, you were saying, like, about how there was, like, more depth to what they were doing. And that's something that Vincent Minnelli is known for. He's known for taking things on stage or things that have a certain feel on stage and bringing that sense to film. So a lot of his films have this feeling of how you would feel watching something on stage. That's the vibe that he gives. And he has beautiful attention to detail about how things would feel. Like tactile? Tactile. He's a very tactile director. Like the wallpaper, the costumes that they wear. Everything is very tactile about his sets and designs. Like this is a house. This doesn't feel like a set. It's so lovely to see such an intimate space that really makes you feel like you're in the house. It doesn't feel like a soundstage, but yet the choreography is brilliant. And the way the camera angles are and they capture that and the long takes that they use, you know, it doesn't seem claustrophobic. It just seems intimate. Good job, sir. Like, it was very impressive. The house is beautiful and lived in. You know, like, even when they take the pictures off the walls, you see where the picture's hung. You see the dust. You see how things look used. They don't look brand new and perfect and gorgeous. This is a lived-in, homey home. And you get why these people want to stay here. I also do want to talk about, I feel like this movie, while it's all about Esther and her... I didn't even mention this earlier. Esther falls in love with, like, a dopey, dopey dude, and it's fine. Whatever. (laughs) Um, She could do so much better, but she doesn't have to. It's fine. 
Um, so Esther falls in love, and that's the main like plot love story besides them potentially having to leave St. Louis when they don't want to. But this is the dad story because he's the one that goes through this character arc and change and growth. Because he comes in all grumpy and grouchy, and he comes in as a separate entity from his family. When I talked about the ketchup earlier, he was the one who didn't even taste it because he's not really a part of the family. They love him, but he's the one that information is kept from, like Rose's phone call where the man is supposed to propose to her over the phone, right? So he's kept out of information. He's not a part of the family, but by the end, he realizes the importance of St. Louis, of his family, of everything that was right there all along in his own backyard. There is no place like home, and he gets it. So even though he's not the mainest main character, I kind of do feel like this is the dad's narrative tale, and it might be a tale for all of us in World War II. That's the um, climax of the movie, is him being like, oh, I get what everyone else is thinking, the viewers included, and that's why it works, I think. We have a character that has that off-screen journey and finally agrees with literally every other person in the universe, including the audience, that this is the way to go. But don't forget, he's a white man, so he's gonna pretend it was his idea at the end. He's gonna take credit for it. I was like, oh, patriarchy. Oh my God. He comes in like, you all wanna move? I wanna stay here. It's my idea. I'm like, screw you, sir. Yeah, I mean, like the out of touch king of the castle is such a used trope and he makes a decision and no one else really can like talk about it or have an opinion about it he doesn't discuss it with his wife first which is bananas i love it he's like why are you upset why are you mad that i'm changing everything without consulting any of you and why did he decide that they were going to stay when everything was all packed up you know he did none of the packing work (laughs) and he makes this decision and i was like so now they probably gave stuff away. Katie's already gone. Katie's fired. She has a new position. <laughs> the chickens are dead or gone, sold. The poor chickens. Also, that reminded me of um, the comedy writing in this is so adorably funny. They do so much of like the contrast. When Rose is talking on the phone, Warren's like, it's like you're in the next room. And she goes, what? There's so much of those kind of jokes where someone does the opposite or says the opposite of what was just said. I appreciated that so much. Like even when the dad was like, no one's ever answering the phone again. And the phone rings and he's like, Rose answered the phone. When Judy was like, I got him. He didn't even touch me. I bit him. The way she delivers a lot of those lines like are just great. It would could have been so easily not funny if somebody not as talented as Judy Garland was saying these lines, but she's she has that comedic timing and it's it's just lovely. She is the whole package. Okay, so Judy Garland, not only is she so funny, she has this incredible, incredible voice. Oh. Her voice is just like from the heart. It is sensational. It's this big, beautiful, bold, uncontrollable almost thing. And she can dance. Like, is she the greatest dancer in the world? No, but she can get the job done. You feel like you're in professional hands with Judy. Like, I very much trust her on film. She's just, she's got everything. And she's so, she's so expressive too. So your heart breaks with her as well. Like in that scene when um, her stupid dopey boyfriend proposes to her and um, she realizes like, maybe they can't be together because she has to go with her family to New York because she can't leave her family. Oh my God, that's heartbreaking. Like you really feel for her and you see the sacrifice she makes and it's in the writing, but it's also in her talent. You are with her 100%, I say. She's so smart in that 
she is able to showcase more of it later in the film, which I think demonstrates how she's maturing as a person through the year, which I thought was really cool. They play that up during the second half of the film of that subtlety and that those deep thoughts that she's having, like the camera focuses on that and it, it stays on her. So you're understanding her maturity as the film goes on. Like when you think about in the beginning, like, oh, I love the boy next door, my little tennis outfit. At the end when she's like, I really want to marry this boy, but I can't. And that's a responsible choice. That's a journey in itself, which I think is really cool. And everything else supports that. Like the costume choices support that. The, the framing on her supports that. Like her hairstyle supports that, like everything. It's a very thoughtful piece. You named it. That's it, Zoe. That's it. You got the movie. That's it. You're right. Uh, can we also, I, now that you've brought up The Boy Next Door and all the music, mm. what's interesting about this movie with the music is similar to Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, where I think the musical numbers that fall flat or that couldn't be like done today are the ones that are supposed to be of the period. Yeah. But then we get three songs that are like outside of the period. We get um, The Boy Next Door, The Trolley Song, and um, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. Mm -hmm. So good. The Boy Next Door, it's a little slow. I understand mm -hmm. that. But I just enjoy it so much. It's so sweet and her voice and her face when she sings it. And it's like, as a girl, like, you get it. Like, it kind of, it, I mean, it gives like a hint of a wink about how kind of it's a ridiculous thing. Like, I've never met him even though he lives at this address next door and I live at this address, which is almost the same. There's those little nuggets. You're like, oh, she's like 16. Like, this is a little bit ridiculous. But like, who hasn't been there? You know, obsessing about a boy who you've never met. It captures it so beautifully. And you're right, the journey that she goes through, that totally supports it. Thank you so much for saying that. Because in the beginning, she is a little more shallow. Her love and her experiences are shallow and young. And by the end, she is very mature. And you're right, we see that in the fashion and in the music. We go from The Boy Next Door, like a crush song, to Have Yourself a oh. Merry Little Christmas. Until then, we'll have to muddle through somehow. She's facing like a darker potentially future, but like going with it. Yeah, and like comforting, like being a mother figure to her younger sister. And you're like, you're seeing that caretaker. Like she was always really sweet to her younger sister. And it matures and it deepens as the movie goes on too. So sweet. And like, I, I challenge anybody to watch that scene with her singing, like, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas to her five-year-old sister and not shedding a tear. And it's like, for the longest time, you listen to that song and you're like, God damn, this song is so depressing. Why is it so fucking sad? You just want to cry when, when you hear this. Why am I so depressed? Like, listening to this song. And then you, you listen to it in its first iteration in this movie and you're like, that's why, because it was made for this really depressingly sad moment in this movie sung wonderfully by Judy Garland. It's like that bled through to the song until this moment in time. It's like, that's why everyone cries during this stupid song. This is my favorite version of that song oh, yeah. because I know that for the radio, they've changed it. Like Frank Sinatra changed it to, you know, hang a shining star, star upon the highest bow, right? This song actually used to be even more depressing than this. Oh, I believe they it. changed the lyrics 
They had done an original version that was different than this, that was more depressing. So I love that they're out there in the world exists an even more depressing lyric for this song. Keep it, keep but it they stored still away. Kept... The world is not ready for that version of song. They would be very irresponsible to bring that to the public. Also, do you want to hear something sassy that I learned this morning? I looked up the dudes that wrote this because I don't, I did not know them very well. Um, their names are Hugh Martin and Ralph Blaine of Martin and Blaine. They were a songwriting duo. They wrote the big songs. They wrote the Trolley song, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, and um, The Boy Next Door. The, all the songs in this musical were written by totally different people. Like, <laughs> they weren't consistently written by the same person. I will say Arthur Freed, who's like the big MGM musical producer, he produced all the big MGM musicals, like Singing in the Rain, et cetera, et cetera. He wrote and sang that You and I song. He co-wrote it with someone else, and that's his voice singing it, which I thought was really sweet. So I want to put that out there. But the best songs were written by Martin and Blaine. And um, Fresh Air apparently did a piece on Hugh Martin, which I'm going to listen to after this. But they wrote a couple, like they wrote Best Foot Forward, the Broadway musical together. They wrote a couple other things together, but these were their biggest hits. And apparently there was a little bit of sass between them. Like um, after Ralph Blaine died, Hugh Martin was like, yeah, I was more important than he was. And I did way more than he did. And like, I actually wrote these lyrics and like, he didn't really write them. And I kind of. I kind of love that a little bit. Like, no, it was all me. It was really me. I, I did this. Um, so I was like, oh, that's some sassiness. That's a little sass up in here. Oh, also, this has nothing to do with that. I'm really changing tracks, and I do want to get back to the trolley song. But you talked about um, Judy Garland's journey mm-hmm. uh, throughout from being like, she's young, she's a little shallow, she gets deeper, she's like more maternal and mature. In the beginning, she's also completely obsessed with getting a man. Like, one of the first things she says is, like, her older sister's Rose, who is, like, 17 or 18. And she's like, you're too old to get a man. You're getting up there in years. And I was like, okay, chill. But she constantly comments and thinks about getting a husband. And you know she has matured because when the opportunity finally presents itself to her and she does get proposed to by the man of her dreams, which we don't understand why that's the man of her dreams, um, she turns it down for her family. That's another way that we know she learned a lesson. Whoa. So I guess we have to get to Tom Drake, who is the boy next door, who is her love interest. I wrote down my first impression of him. Um, I've never understood why she loves him quite so much. Just youth, I suppose. First time we see him, he's just like standing on his lawn, trying to smoke a pipe. Oh, I wrote, he looks douchey and dumb, but not mean. And I think that holds true once you get to know him. It's like, dude, could you not be so obsessed with all those goddamn sports and get a goddamn watch? Judy, run. His first love is basketball, and he will always put that first. And he does. Like, dude, you were almost late for the trolley because of stupid practice. You left your tux at the cleaners because of basketball. And I love Judy's line. She's like, oh, you must hate me. She's like, no, I just hate basketball. I'm like, girl, for real. Can you be a little bit responsible, sir? Seriously. And this isn't just a dance. This is their last dance ever in St. Louis. The stakes are high and you chose basketball. It's not that hard to pick up a suit from the cleaner, sir. I didn't know what this movie was. Like there were definitely moments throughout this film where I was like, 
oh, is this going to be like a glass menagerie moment? Like where all the dreams just like crash down and becomes like the most depressing thing in the world. Like I had no idea what this movie really was. And now obviously I know exactly what it is. And it's very clear. It's like the most optimistic movie you've ever seen in your life. But as I was watching it, I'm like, he's going to be at the dance when she's there with another girl. That's what I really thought was going to happen was that he did this horrible thing because she's leaving. So he's like, fuck you, or it's never going to work or whatever. And it's going to be this horrible moment. And then it didn't happen. I'm like, oh, okay, this is a very happy movie. So many times I was like, oh, good, it's going to end in tragedy and it's going to be so depressing. But it never did. It was just like, the, which is why I love it. I was like, just kidding. Everything that was possible to work out well did. And that's great. Yeah, this movie's got your back. Yeah. They work out everybody's future. They don't just work out Judy Garland. We know she's going to be happy forever. Her sister gets the guy she wants. Her brother's the only one that made a good choice. Can we just also name that? Yeah. Right? Because Rose chooses Warren Sheffield, who seems just ridiculous. And his proposal is kind of controlling. Let's be real about it. He comes and he's like, you're going to marry me. I love you. And then he leaves. (laughs) Um, So you got that guy. And then you've got Lon, Lon who likes his spicy ketchup. He's the only one that like chooses a smart person, which I really like. Everybody gets a happy ending, every single human in this piece. And I love that for one second you thought that because as a modern viewer, that's what we expect now. We expect our hearts to get crushed. I kept waiting for it. Yes, but this movie has your back. Um, The trolley song, let's just go there. One of the greatest moments in movie musical history. What do you think, Zoe? Like, the joy that Judy has during that song. Like, she's so happy. She, like, looks off in the distance kind of a little manically, but, like, it's just so honestly full of joy. She's having the best time singing that song. Because he showed up for her. He was going to miss it for basketball, but then he's dopily running after the trolley car to try to catch it, and she sings this song about, like, a story that's not her story, but they're on a trolley, so it, it makes sense about a person falling in love on a trolley if you have not heard the song go listen to that song and come back and tell me you do not feel great about your life it's so delightful it's such a good song i love that she's so surprised in the end that he's next to her and i'm like girl didn't you just sing a whole song about how a guy's gonna show up for you on a trolley do you know what i mean and then at the end she's surprised that he's there (laughs) Like, you just, you saw him. That's what prompted the song. Did you not think he was going to catch it? I love also the fact, like, just picturing it in my head, like, as she's singing this fairly long diatribe of love and how he's here, he's just, like, manically trying to catch up with the trolley. And he's, like, is not stopping. It's gaining in speed. And he's just trying so hard to catch it. I will say, though, he probably caught it because he does play a lot of stupid sports. And his cardio is probably pretty good. So we hate basketball, but we also love basketball for giving him the abilities to catch the trolley. This is true. And he was not winded. He was not sweaty. He must be pretty good at basketball. True story. But she was also not winded or sweaty, and that's how they're perfect for each other. When they exercise, they don't sweat. If either of them has sweat glands, it's great. Wow, their children must be really incredible. Their future not sweaty kids. I'm just like picturing what Judy Garland looked like as a 16 year old and like my sad ass persona when I was 16 covered in zits my hair was like a giant puffball except for the, the strands right by my face which were creepily straight for no apparent reason glasses braces see 16 was when it started to come together for me 
because that was when I got my braces off oh, yeah. and my teeth looked incredible. <laughs> so in every picture of me being 16, I smile with like all of my teeth just because I want you to know how straight they are. Now they're awful. Same. They used to be so straight. Yep. Why didn't I wear my retainers? Children, wear your retainers. That is the moaning of all people over 30, I feel. Everyone's getting Invisalign. That'll be us someday if we care enough. I don't know. It's fine. Yeah. But yeah, there was like a couple years in there where my teeth were so awesome and straight. Thanks, braces. Yeah. And now it's all gone to crap. Um, I would like to touch on Vincent Minnelli a little yes. bit. Because Vincent Minnelli is an incredible director. Oh. And like, go Vincent Minnelli. Mm -hmm. So I noticed online that people were saying that this was where they met, him and Judy Garland. This is not where they met. Oh. They had met four years earlier on the set of Strike Up the Band when he was helping out Busby Berkeley. So they had technically met before, but this was where they fell in love. And apparently it wasn't love right away. Apparently it started with conflict. At first they butted heads and then they loved each other. I feel like their love story needs to be a movie. It does. Well, he was also a gay man, so... Didn't end well. It didn't work <laughs> out because he was gay. Yeah, that would make sense. it made sense that he would love Judy Garland because he was gay. That tracks. Judy is one of the gay icons, so it makes There's sense. There's a reason why the percentage of people that understood my costume as Judy Garland was 90% gay man on that wonderful <laughs> Halloween. <laughs> Just the way it goes. Yeah. I think at one point there was a story I heard. Okay, when we were in high school, there were like a lot of uh, like Lifetime movies made about Judy Garland. I don't know why, but there were. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. I don't remember if it was from that and if it's real or if I heard it on TCM, but like she caught him with another man, <gasps> but they like still ended up staying together. Oh. I know. It's a bummer for everybody. If he could have just been gay and been out, he would have been able to like live his best life. Right. Whatever. They produced Liza Minnelli. That's true. And she is a star. That's true. And they are a unique family because they are the only family where every member of the family has an Oscar. Ah, look at that. Isn't that insane? Yeah. So anyway, Vincent Minnelli, um, he is a prolific musical director. He directs an American in Paris, oh. Gigi. Oh. All of which won best, um, the Academy Award for Best Movie. Of course. Best Motion Picture. Um, he directs Cabin in the Sky, which is a really excellent um, movie musical as well about like the African-American experience, which is funny that he would direct it, but you know, it is what it is. Um, and he has a very amazing knack for taking things that go on the stage and putting them on movies and giving you a similar vibe of how that felt. I mean, this movie gave me serious, you can't take it with you vibes in a big way. Like, I mean, besides the fact that Yes is about a, a family and it's very intimate in that family and it takes place in a house mostly, but it also just kind of has that vibe. Like they're a little kooky. There's an offbeat grandpa. Things are very lived in. Nothing crazy really happens, but yet it's very entertaining to watch. And it's like, you see your own experiences in that family, but it's also better. It's like, you see your real experiences, but you also see what like your life could be. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It combines those two oh, things. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it's the definition of nostalgia. It's like, it's enough to make you recognize your own experience in something, but knowing that it's never going to be that glossy and that beautiful and yeah. perfect, but it just like wraps you in a warm blanket. I think a lot of the times when something gets a little too nostalgic and perfect, it becomes almost depressing in a way and you get mad because you're like oh my god this is ridiculous like that was life is like this as a semi-bitter person as people could probably attest I I'm surprised at myself 
watching this, I did not feel that way. I really didn't feel like they were manipulating me. Probably just because they were so freaking honest with it. They're just like, we're telling a story that is really, 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 really positive. Here you go. And that's great. And I didn't feel bitter about how it was so outside of what people's experience actually is and hardships that people actually experience. Wasn't mad about it. Well, and again, this comes out during World War II. It's serving a purpose. Like, people cannot be with their families. People are dreaming of home. You know, things are not normal. Mm -hmm. And so this movie comes along with a very, you're right, you said nostalgic, homey. Um, it's a very comforting film. Um, it's very escapist. It remembers a better, peaceful, beautiful time. And I don't want to say better time because it's not like a better time for people's rights. Of course. I just meant the way we think about the past. Whenever we're like, ah, those were the good and old days. And let's be fair, that never really existed, period. Yes. Like, it's nostalgic for a time that literally never happened. Like, nothing. It's never beautiful every single day in July. People sweat when they play tennis. Of course, it's in this fantasy world, but maybe it's because of the time that we're living in now that I was okay being pulled into a time that wrapped itself in this very sweet bow of perfectness that I know didn't exist, but like, it's nice to fantasize about. Yeah. And I imagine like during World War II for like, if a soldier saw this or for if the people waiting at home, same, same thing. thing. And then I was actually thinking the dad's journey is kind of like the World War II mentality. Like, we're upset, we're grumpy, like, bad things are happening in the world. But then by the end, despite all the bad things that are happening in the world, you can find a sense of peace and optimism in yourself and in your family and in your home. Right. And so I'm almost like, maybe that's the biggest, like, not just like, there's no place like home, but hey, we're all in this terrible war mm -hmm. all over the world. How can we make this feel a little bit better in our day-to-day -day lives? Right. Which again, World War II was a big deal. We <laughs> should not undermine that but and it's been and I it was get going it. on for a while at that point like they were yeah. in it for a while i mean it, this was made in 44 and in 45 in the spring it was done so i don't know if this was before or after d-day so i don't know how much their optimism was getting better or it was kind of still like we're still in it we don't know how long this is going to go for It'd be interesting to know if it was before or after D-Day, but I think that it's very much the movie that you want to watch when you're just feeling like the world is a little bit of a crap bucket. Oh, I do want to bring up the Halloween segment, by the way. Historically, when I watch this movie, that's my least favorite segment, mainly because I'm like, eh, and it's weird. Can we just talk about, like, the way they used to celebrate Halloween, apparently, with unattended five-year-olds throwing things into a bonfire? In the middle of the street. The grown-ups were so cool about stuff, too. They were like, here, take some flour. When you steal that person's thing off their lawn, remember to put it back. Like, they're all really chill about it. And I wonder, like, how much of that in 1944 was still some kind of tradition? Like, was it that different for the people watching it in 1944 as it is for us watching it? Because for me, it took me an embarrassingly long amount of time to realize what the fuck was happening in this scene. I was like, oh, it's Halloween. But yes, I mean, the way they dressed up with like terrifyingly cross-gendered ghouls, yeah, the giant bonfire and throwing flour in people's faces and saying, I hate you. 
Like, that's an extra little, like, why? That seems really intense for a five-year-old to throw flowers at somebody's I hate you. The costumes were a horrible ghost and a terrible drunken ghost. So I just, those were their costumes in case anyone was wondering. Like what Zoe was just saying was like on Halloween, the way they celebrate it is like the kids run rampant and free. They're allowed to do whatever they want in their kooky costumes, which are nonsensical, but great. And I love the cross-dressing. I was like, yes, yes, yes. Good work. I also love how the gang leader of that terrifying 11-year-old boy who I think will probably end up killing some animals at one point in time had like the biggest bosom and ass you've ever seen and I was like this kid man I am very intrigued. I was there for it though and so the whole point of the evening is to quote-unquote kill people in your neighborhood and you kill them by throwing flour on them and saying I hate you and that's what Zoe was talking about and it's so true like that's such a weird thing. And the adults all kind of like it. Like, they play their parts. So when Tootie goes to the meanest person in town, who no one will go to, the Brokaws, and she throws flour in his face and says, I, I hate you, and leaves, the guy, like, smiles. But yeah. She looks grumpy in the moment. But then he smiles about yeah. it and wipes the flour off, and his bulldog is licking the flour off the ground. So it's just, like, such a weird way. I would prefer candy personally. Um, <laughs> but they do say when they come back, they're like, you'll have ice cream when you come home. So I'm like, I guess that's how it was done. Like, you go out and do terrible things and come home and have I treats. I mean, it is, so. like, original, like, trick or treat, right? So I guess it was all trick. And tr- it was trick and treat. Trick and treat. Because you get treated at, at home. home. Right. Okay, so there's there's no really there's no real trick anymore nowadays. We've lost the trick. I'm okay with that. I'm gonna be real. As a homeowner, I'm cool with that. As an adult, I don't want people to throw flour in my face. Like that doesn't sound like fun. To burn a giant pile of old furniture in front of my house and throw flour at me, like that. That's fine. I, I will happily give you candy. That was the Halloween moment. And then Tootie gets recognition for being the baddest in town because she does that whole thing. But then we learn later on her and her sister are basically murderers because they try to get the trolley to jump the track. Oh, this is something we have to talk about. One of my notes was, Tootie, that's a serious accusation. You can't just throw that shit around. Right? She accuses her sister's boyfriend of hitting and harming her yeah. when he did not do those things. Right. And everyone's like, ha ha ha, she's a child. She didn't didn't cry when she had stitches. Like, um. And then Judy goes over and attacks him. P.S. Go Judy. But then he's not, he was like, ha ha, why are you hitting me? It's like, your girlfriend is accosting you and hitting you and accusing you of beating up her five-year-old sister. And you're just like, ah. That's funny. That's a funny misunderstanding. You're not like, you thought I hit your sister? What kind of man do you think that I am? There's none of that? He's like, yeah, you thought I totally hit your sister. (laughs) We good? I don't think he got that far. I think his mental capabilities are rather slow. He's just a pleasant person. As we've seen several times, his mental capabilities are slow because Judy is putting the moves on him. And every time he's like, what? You smell like my grandma. Like, he's never quite with it. Maybe that's what she likes about him. But yeah, so at that moment, you're right. A normal reaction would be like, look, I didn't do those things, okay? And then it does come out that not only did he not hit her, he, like, saved her life because she was, like, putting a fake body on a a trolley track and he like pulled her off of it and got her away from the police so she didn't get in trouble and she rips out his hair and has it in her hand that was all very intense right and then he's just like do you want to go out tomorrow night like excuse me 
that's how she gets her first kiss and their first kiss is so awkward and I love it. It's not this big romantic movie kiss. It's like she basically beats him up. She leaves and she's like, I bit him. Which she did do. And like good for her. Like way to be protective, I guess. I don't know. But then she goes back, apologizes. And as she's like talking, he like just grabs her really quick and kisses her and then pushes her away. And that's their big first romantic kiss. Which tracks, because I guess he is 17. Right. He's a young lad. Like, they don't know. I'm being so mean about him, but they're children. Right. And I love it at the end when he's like, we wasted so much time. And I'm like, you've known each other for six months. You've been dating for two. I don't think that you wasted that much time. And I also love, it's like, they can't talk us out of it. We're of age. And Judy gives the most hilarious look that you almost don't catch it. We're of age. Almost. And you're right. Tootie never faces the consequences of her action. She makes a wrong accusation that's very serious. She does some really terrible things, like almost murder a bunch of people. Like, in The Invisible Man. We watched The Invisible Man. Uh, two weeks ago. In The Invisible Man, one of the terrible murderous things he does is set a train off a track and a hundred people are killed. That was Tootie. Like, she was going to set the train off the track. Tootie! And everyone laughs about it and gives her ice cream. So precocious. And the moment when the dad comes in and he's like, What's, what happened? And Tootie says this crazy thing and the mom's like, don't listen to her. She cut her lip. She's fine. She's like, she fell. She's fine. But yeah, she faces no consequences for her actions. And I wonder what kind of human she grows up to be as well. I'm very curious. She's so macabre and she's such an oddball. And no one's checking her on it. No, no. Because she's the baby. They're right. like, whatever. Like, her hobby is pretending her dolls are deathly ill and burying them and having funerals for them. She's like a little Wednesday Adams, but with some, like, joy. Which I love. And I have a feeling it's going to be a very awesome person that's going to do a lot of eye rolling to her, like, older beige sisters. She's going to be, like, this awesome scientist or, like, something. But they're not beige because they have a family band. And anyone who has a family band... Band. Well, no, I shouldn't say it. Some people are terrible and have family bands. But anyone that has a family band has at least something. They have a hobby or they have something. Right. Lon plays the fiddle. The older sister plays the piano. Mm-hmm. And Judy sings. There you go. And sometimes also plays the piano. And the mom also plays the piano. Yeah. But as in all old movies, when they're playing, none of the keys go down. Nope. Because you can't really play There's the piano. a lot piano. of like the, like the feather hands is what I like to say. It's like, you're not pushing down. It's one of my favorite, one of my favorite old movie things, watching them play the piano. Because they couldn't take the things out of the piano. So they couldn't play the piano because it would really make a sound. So they always play over the keys. And... You're a really good actor if you can make it look yeah. like you're playing the piano. Yeah. And that's my, I love it. Um, I do also want to mention the you and I moment too. Oh. The you and I moment was actually very sweet. Um, so the dad comes in, tells everyone that they're moving to New York, that he's decided and that they should all just be happy about it. <laughs> and they don't take it very well and they all leave. But then um, he starts singing this song. Or does he start? The mom, the mom starts, starts playing the piano. Of course it's the mom. The mom starts playing the piano, a song that's important to them probably their song, called You and I, and the dad starts singing with her, and she goes, oh, let me lower it in your key. And they all come together as a family. So even though he has put this huge, like, changing impetus out there in the world, they can still all be reminded of how important they are to each other. Yeah. That was a very sweet moment. And I also love how everyone refused a cake, but then they started eating the cake, 
And the grandpa said, I don't want to play cribbage with you. I have things to do. And you can see them putting the cribbage out, the cards out. So they're going to play it. So like they're, everyone's like, all right, this sucks. You know our opinion about it. But what are we going to do? Like not talk to each other until January? Like that's not what we do. Though I'd like to think the mother is going to have like some words with him later that night. But maybe not. <laughs> well, because she's so thoughtful about him. Like she thinks about how he wants his ketchup. She lowers the key for him. Yeah. <laughs> like she's very thoughtful. Yeah. And you'd think he could be thoughtful about her for five seconds. Again, back to the like, you can't just make a life decision without consulting your family. I'm sorry, you just yeah. can't. Uh-huh. Dad was problematic, but he could have been worse. Considering it's, you know, 1903, women don't have the vote for a long time oh my God. still. Like for 17 more years. So, you know, I mean, at least the family voiced their displeasure about it. And the mother was saying, are you like, why did you think I would have been happy about this? You're very cool about this. I'm angry about like, they, they at least they voiced that they were not happy. And I feel like it would have been easy during, for the time for them to all be like silently stoic about it and then cry in their bedroom alone. You know, it's like, oh, well, daddy says, at least it wasn't that. At least it was like, this sucks. I hate this. And then he gets defensive about it. And then they all come back to the family. Like, is it great? No. Is he the out of touch king of the castle of 1944? Of course. You know, and it kind of goes back to another moment, which I liked with the dad, where he wanted to go take a freaking bath. So he wanted to like everyone to go along with like his life and not have any consideration for anybody else. But I love, there's this like tiny little moment. The mom, he gets angry and she goes, count to five. And he stops and he counts to five. So it's like, they totally had this conversation alone in their bedroom where she's like, dude, you need to check your anger and I'm going to ask you to count to five and you better goddamn do it because you're getting a little out of hand. Like, you know that happened and he does it, which I appreciate. So I feel like even though obviously it's a picture of its time, he's very stupid. Women's rights and having an equal voice in the family, obviously that's not going to happen. But it could be worse, I guess. Women still have a voice in this household. He does listen to the women in his household and make room for them, like yeah. even letting Rose answer the phone, that part. But also you can see it in the brother now, I'm realizing too, because the brother does respect his sisters. He plays wingman for Esther a little bit. He gets a little sassy about playing wingman, but he still does it. Like, they're all equals. Yeah. No one's like lording over anyone else. Um, I'm a man, therefore. Like, none of that happens. Yeah. Everyone is still equaled and loved in this household. Everyone's voice matters. Right, because it's about the family more so than the authoritative power of one person. Like, it is collectively about the unit, which goes along with the theme of the whole thing. I feel like there were a lot of moments when they were trying to do that thing where they showed, like, remember this old-fashioned thing? Yeah. So it would be like... This the old telephone. Remember when we used to have to yell into one phone in front of everybody? And then they had a part about like women. And you can tell things have changed so much because there's a line that says, nice girls don't let men kiss them till after they are engaged. Um, men don't want the bloom rubbed off. And you know that in the 40s that was meant as a joke because obviously people are smooching left and right. right. Like 
you know, people smooch all the time. <laughs> Smooching all around. So I feel like even that line was like a joke about the time. I Although I suppose it would have been for sex. Like you don't have sex because you don't want the bloom rubbed off. But kissing, kissing is... It's like that like, simpler time that they were like harkening back to. It's like, we still believe the same thing, but in like a cooler way. But it's all kind of Yeah. Well, and like the ice truck, Tootie riding the ice truck, because that was a thing back then, like a thing of its time, because you had to deliver ice. <laughs> you couldn't have it in your home. And the corsets too, like the corsets were no longer a thing in 44 and they did the whole thing. I mean, I was proud that they, that Judy was like, fuck this. I was like, yeah, man, corsets freaking suck. As actors, I'm sure you've acted in period pieces. We understand firsthand how awful corsets are. And they were even laced up half as much as they actually were back in the day, obviously, because we have to like, you know, breathe to say lines. So yeah, I appreciated the fact that she's like, I, I can't breathe. I love my figure. I can't breathe. Also the unsung thing about corsets. So you're right. We, we, I had to wear them in college for shows and stuff and you really have to wear It's real. Like they really put you in a corset. Oh, yeah. They're not joking around when you're at a period yep. piece. Um, and I remember you do have to get used to it and you do kind of get used to it, yeah. which is shocking because you never think you will. But yeah, the first time you wear it, not only can you not breathe, but your boobs get pushed up oh so God, high they strangle you. that it looks gross. It's, it's not attractive. It's not a normal so you're silhouette. Like, why do people like this? It's, this is gross looking. Yeah. Like I would have to, that's why they had those scarves that they would cover because <laughs> it looks, unless you're super flat chested, I bet you look adorable. But when you act like I have, I have big boobs. When you put, like it just looked, I had to like hide them. Yeah. <laughs> like it, was, it looked terrible. It's not natural. It looked really. It's not sexy. No. It's like those drawings where they where they say like in real life, this is what Barbie would look like. And they like do a actual rendition of what a person would look like as a Barbie with her like dimensions. You're like, Ugh! and it's like terrifying. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's like what? that. Um, but yeah, I do love the corset scene. I love all of that. And I just love like, also I think it's funny because they do the manipulation of men talk a lot. Mm. Like we've got to trick him into loving us. Like I'm going to hide his hat in the bread box and that's what I'm going to do so I can talk to him after. Oh no, there's mice in my house. Oh daddy, will you help me turn off the lights in my house? I'm so scared. Like there's all that kind of stuff. But I felt like that was probably still happening in the 40s too. For sure. So it was kind of like a wink for women like, haha, we've always caught men in mysterious ways. Yeah, our wiles. Like, We're so smart to manipulate. Yeah, exactly. It still completely still happens. And especially because you weren't able to actually, you know, be bold and to say what you think. And, you know. It's so funny because she's so young. And I was like, oh my God, she was so the girl reading like Seventeen or Cosmo and being like, tips or tricks, how to get your man. Mm-hmm. thing. Especially when you're like 16, you don't know anything. Well, at 16, I was like, I don't care. That's true. I was that kid. I, you didn't care either, I don't think. No. Also, no one cared about me because, as I mentioned before, I didn't look the best. Um, and her tricks are lost on him. Again, we should mention. I think he does end up liking her for her. One other trick I noticed, they're doing the skip to Malou dance, which, again, probably very charming. But the song itself isn't the greatest song because it's freaking skip to Malou. <laughs> but there's one point when he goes up to her and he's like, I don't have a partner. And she's like, skip. So she's still playing the game. And I think when she's like playing the game, that's not what works on him. The things that he ends up liking about 
about her, which make him, you know, kind of dumb but not mean, is he actually does like her. He likes it when she's really being herself. Yeah. When she's dorkily singing about the trolley and he's there. When she beats him up over potentially harming her sister and he's like, great, I love that Adorable. about you. I don't care about your tricks. I like you for you, Esther. I do think that's fair. He's a sweetie pie. You just want her with someone slightly smarter. She's so smart that you're like, couldn't you just... Again, Lon picked the best person. He picked the only, like... She went to college, I think, right? The girlfriend he picked didn't yeah, meet her at college. Her and she's the one that's like, hey, guys, look, this situation is ridiculous. Um, how about I dance with Lon and Warren, you dance with Rose? Because that's the partners. Oh, they go to a dance and the dance is messed up because Rose wants to marry this guy, Warren, but he's been dating her for a while and is too scared to ask her to marry him. So he ends up asking Lucille, who is Lon's girlfriend. It's a whole convoluted thing. As I was watching it, I was like, what is happening? Why? Like, if you both are in love with each other, like, why do you just ask them? Like, what? Ha- how did this fall apart? Well, Lucille corrects that. She's like, look, this is ridiculous. Allow me to be the mature human and state this case. Thank you, Lucille. They do want to play a trick on Lucille, and they give her a dance card, which I'm so glad dance cards don't exist anymore. Ugh. If you had to, like, were forced to dance with certain people all night, that would suck. You can't be like, no, I don't want to. You gotta. It's stupid. Um, but... They fill out her dance card with terrible dancers, so I always feel bad that her last dance in St. Louis, even though technically it won't be her last because, well, it might be because she's going to get married, and when you're married, you can't have fun anymore, I guess, in the past. I just get pregnant. Whatever. Um, Which, again, some people might want that, but if that's your only choice, you should be allowed to have other options. Exactly. But I feel so bad that her last dance is with really terrible, awful dancers. That's a bummer. Yeah, her last dance, she went with her grandfather and had horrible dance partners all night, and then he came. My impression, even though I I know technically it probably isn't true, because I think she only danced with like three people they showed her dancing with three people and her grandpa and then he showed and then putsy boy with the i think i think his name now showed up behind the christmas tree like a big old creep so my impression was that was the last song of the night but i guess probably it wasn't they were able to have like most of the evening hopefully being like a happy time i like to think it was like three quarters yeah i like to think that or two-thirds. They still had, like, a little chunk of time together. Right. Before they, like, went to a tree and yeah. proposed. It was very white Christmas. Let's change our life behind a tree. I do want to say that what I noticed this time was that Judy Garland and her sister are both wearing a red and green dress at a Christmas dance. And you'd think since it's a Christmas dance, there'd be red and green galore. But no one else is wearing red and green. And I was like, wait, are you telling me at a Christmas dance, they're the only ones allowed to have the good colors for Christmas? Really? And can I just talk about a little bit how freaking gorgeous her dress is, Judy Garland's dresses during the Christmas dance? It is so beautiful. That dress is stunning. Also, while we're on the, the subject of Christmas dance and um, Dopey Boy. Tom, his name is Tom. Thank you. Thank no, you wait, so it's much. not. That's so his real name. John. His name is John. I'm sorry. Real life name, Tom. Tom. John. Schmann. Movie name, No one John. cares. He's so His stupid. name is Boring White. Exactly. Hi, I'm like, Boring White Man. Beige this Boy. So when they had the scene of Judy and her and her grandpa and the grandpa's like, hey, you know, I just got my suit out of mothballs. It needs to step out, like hinty hint hint. I was like, oh, he can loan it to Beige Boy. Perfect. And then she's like, I'm going to dance with grandpa. And I'm like, wait, what? Why? In my first viewing, I thought that too. But then I was like, well, because they probably aren't the same size. Right. Like, Grandpa's okay. so skinny and small. True. But yeah, I thought that too, 100%. I'm with you. I feel like they could have made it work somehow, like a frantic sewing scene. That's an opportunity. I also am very curious, as I'd like to think about what he was doing as he was running trying to catch her in the trolley as she sings this like very long song about how he's running to get on the trolley. I also like to fantasize about how he got that tux. How did he get it? 
Did he break in? Did he like find the dude's house and make him open up the shop? What's that little side drama? Two things I've never thought about this in my life and I just got them. One, the answer that I just imagined for the trolley was he's running after the trolley, finally catches it, gets on, has no fare. So the whole song he's just feeling <laughs> in his pockets. I left it in my basketball uniform. And then for the Tux thing, okay, I have no idea, but he must have found Tux Man. I imagine him walking down the streets yelling, Taylor, like just yelling that and waiting for someone to come out. That must have been, right? That's probably the height of his intelligence trying to fix that situation. So that's probably what it is. I don't think like a giant like cat burglar scenario is going to go down. So I don't think he could have orchestrated it very, very well at all. Or like he's going to go to jail after the scene because he took his basketball and threw it through the window. <laughs> that's the other option. Like after I serve my jail time, Esther, then, then we shall get married. Why can't he wait? That doesn't make sense either, because she makes a great suggestion. He proposes, he's like, let's get married stat. She's like, no, I can't. I gotta move with my family. But we can be back together. And he's like, no, that that won't work. Like, I don't understand why that won't work. No. Why can't you wait? You could go to college. You're 16 or 17. Like, you go to college and then you can come back together. Why? Why can't that happen? Why is that a big deterrent right? for you? And isn't Rose's stupid boyfriend that she's been seeing, does it, isn't he in New York? Yes. Like they made it work. It, there's literally an example of how that works in the film already. Lon goes to Princeton. He can come home and visit the family. Right? So many great points, Zoe, that I hadn't thought of till right now. We could have solved all their problems. They never asked us, but they should have wow. really. I also love her um, when she's in the red dress, but she has that sparkly like head covering. Right? I'm like, what? I don't know what it is and how it works and how it keeps your ears warm, but I'm here for it. I wanted to buy it. I was going to research it and be like, I need that for my own self yes. and for my own life. Wow, that's great. Yes. Because yeah, she has this beautiful romantic moment and they're like, it's cold out. She can't be just wearing her dress. What can we do about this? I know. Sparkly headpiece. Sparkly headpiece. Sparkly warming headpiece. Um, I also want to talk about the snowmen and how fake that they are, but I'm so glad. They're the fakest snowmen I've ever seen. They did film this in LA. Maybe they've never seen snow. I don't know. But they make these snowmen and Tootie goes to destroy them because she's like, if I can't bring them to New York, no one can have them. And this is the impetus for his dad changing his mind. He sees his five-year-old daughter like murdering snowmen and decapitating them. He's like, oh shoot, we can't go to New York. My daughter needs to be able to decapitate snowmen in her own yard. But yeah, they're clearly made of, I don't know what substance that is plaster maybe yeah they were like hollow inside that's a great craftsmanship of snow when you can, you can make a hollow snowman and she also was bashing the crap out of them and they were like hardly taking any damage that's like some well-constructed snowman that polar bear was a work of art and i was like no one could make that i my snowman all looked like crap growing up we're from a cold and snowy place but they probably were so great because the way they were constructing them if you watch rose like with snow it was just like she had like a tiny little like teaspoon in her hand and she was just taking it with her fingers and just like smushing it on them slowly that's some dedicated work no wonder they were so attached to them it took them like 17 days to make them well and even just everything was slower right so we get the sense of like to turn off the lights you had to turn off each individual oil yeah. thing you know it took a minute you needed a key you need you spent all day making ketchup you spend all day making ketchup and then someone just comes along and pours some salt in it what the hell also they were all sharing that spoon and it stressed me out so bad <laughs> they'd eat off the spoon and put it right back in and then someone would come. i was so 
stressed out by that. Family, eh, you know. So yeah, that was my moment of like, please stop, De new spoon. And then the expressions, like, um, like I think Tom Gar- is Tom J- John, boring beige boy. No, I can't remember his name. It's just escaped both of us. He says, darn it, pardon the expression. And then he goes like, that's ginger peachy of you, Esther. And I was like, oh my God, I love this. That's really cute. It wraps you in a warm blanket of like, everything has got to be okay. And that's nice. Although I do want to mention, I don't know if this is offensive or not. And I do want to just call out and name when they do that cakewalk dance about yeah. like, if you like a man, like, right? I was like, ooh, that might not be okay. I don't know who they're pretending to be. They yeah. talk about the jungle. Right. And you're like, who are you pretending to be? Is I was this like, okay? I'm uncomfortable with this. I feel like this just can't be fine. Considering when it was written. Yeah, I don't think yeah. that's So we're uh, calling that out not an okay thing or moment but at the same time the reason it exists in the movie is to show like the big sister and the little sister doing a fun number for the family together like how families do when you put on a little show with your family and how cute and sweet that is the reason they did it everyone can relate to what they did questionable product of the times also so many braids that was my other note about skip to my loo i was like this is a braid festival if you are someone that likes to see braids oh boy this is the movie and the number for you they'd have the highest hair in front i've ever seen in my life it was like a castle of hair in their front their bouffants were huge and then they'd go into two braids and that was just the look of the the party the party that they had it was so clearly like a teenager party even though it was in 1904 i feel like they made a point to make it feel very this is what kids do like and kids can relate to this even in 1944 and a little bit even now like they were laying on the floor you know like the 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 girls sitting on the floor eating cake laughing like everyone's kind of strewn about there was no like formality in it which was cool because when you think of parties in 1904 you don't think of like that casual parlor (laughs) atmosphere that they had which i thought was like pretty cool like you could see remnants of like oh this might have been actually what teenagers did then we tend to put the history under glass or pretend like everything was so proper then but people have always been people and yeah this show is like teenagers being teenagers and like them dancing having fun but then also the showing off like you know judy sings that song with her younger sister because she wants to show off like look look how good i am with my sibling i'm so good at this look how good i sing look how good i dance oh yeah you know she wants to like show off for her crush you totally get that oh yeah no, I, every single thing that Judy did during that whole dance party exchange was very calculating and it paid off great for her. Yeah. Well, you all felt how aware she was of the crush too. Cause that's, we all know that oh, feeling yeah. being a teenager being like, oh my God, my crush is over there. Oh my God. What do I even say? What do I even do? I mean, she had way more game than I did. <sighs> so much more game. I think we really did cover everything. We haven't really gotten to um, Agnes very much, but like, you know what? She was fun. She was 10 she was there. She was a good like counterpart to Tootie. She gave somebody yeah. for Tootie to have dialogue with. That was like, that was close enough to Tootie's vibe, 
but it was all about Tubi every time they had that exchange. Like, that poor actress. Like, I'm sure she's very talented, but, like, she was up against Tootie in every single scene. No one's gonna notice you. Just like we were like, oh, yeah, Agnes, whatever. Tootie's amazing. She has one great moment, though. So it's where they almost murder someone. They, like, put the fake body on the tracks, and then John Truitt saves them and gets them away from the police and pulls the body off the tracks and everybody's saved. But um, Rose is like, I can't believe you did that. That's terrible. And Agnes looks at her and goes, ugh. Rose, you're so stuck up. That was a great line, Agnes. Good for you. That was a solid moment. I'm glad they gave that to her. And I do love the whole meet me in St. Louis thing. I should, we didn't talk about St. Louis, but like how that's an extra character, how much they all love St. Louis and how that song is prominently featured throughout. Um, I don't know that they ever totally sing it all, I guess they do sing it all the way through. It's just not a very long song. It's very short, but it sticks in your head. They say Tootsie Wootsie. They don't say Tootsie Wootsie. Right? Tootsie Wootsie. And it's like the Wootsie. Yeah, I will dance the Hoochie Coochie. They leaned into it, but it's been in my head for days. And they so. make sure that you know that St. Louis in the song is different than St. Louis. You say St. Louis, but in the song you can sing St. Louis. It's allowed. The song is slightly obnoxious, but I love that everyone sings it and the dad can't stand it. And that reminded me of Call Me Maybe when that was a hit. All I was thinking of like the Carly Rae Jepsen summer when like we were all singing that song like crazy and it was everywhere all the time. And there must have been like a dad out there that was like, save me. Like no more Call Me Maybe. That's what I was thinking of when that happened. Um, and then at the end, we see the World's Fair at St. Louis. And they're so excited because the electric lights on the river are all turned on. And they can have French food. They were very excited right. about that. It ends with a feeling of like a meal because it started with a meal and food. And somehow they kind of like pushed that in at the very end of like the unifying thing of food. That happens a lot in this movie. And the dad was the one that suggests it. Mm. So the dad is not included in the food in the beginning. And then by the end, he picks the yeah, food. Yeah, and he knows where it is. And he's going to like bring him to it. Like I feel like it's kind of a symbolic, like he's part of the family now. Like he gets it. And they're all wearing white, both for being suffragettes, but also for having a clean slate. And the movie ends, I feel like, and look at how beautiful this is, right in our own backyard. In St. Louis. I expected, like, an ad for St. Louis to come up from the bottom when that happened. It's like the tourist bureau would just kind of, like, slowly come up from the bottom. All right. Oh, and I wrote for the dad. The dad's always like, why doesn't anyone tell me about anything? And I'm like, because you're the worst. You're such a grumpy dude. That's why. Don't be such a grumper and they'll tell you. And then he figures that out, as we've mentioned several times. And the scene with the telephone where, like, Rose, her boyfriend's calling her long distance. It's a big deal. So they're trying to bump up dinner an hour earlier so Rose can have this conversation in private so she can, quote, unquote, like, you know, manipulate him into asking her to marry him. And Katie has that great line about like, I would never marry a man that that uh, proposed to me over a device. But the dad won't won't do it. He won't bend. He's not flexible. So she has to have the call in front of him. And it's very embarrassing and adorable. And so many. And how many times does that happen? Where like your family is around when you want to be a, a, a quote unquote adult in some fashion. It's always the most awkward thing in the world. But it did warm my heart a little bit when she was done with the call. And it obviously was like an awkward. People felt sorry for. Her. And it was silent. Even the even the dad got it. Like that, I appreciated. The dad understood mm-hmm. how she was embarrassed, and it didn't go well. And they all spoke all at once. And then like, ha ha ha! Oh, we all spoke at once. Now it's awkward. And then Judy says the thing. It's like, well, you know, not every girl has somebody, a Princeton boy, calling from New York City. Everyone's kind of on board again. Like, ha ha ha! Family times. Like that was a nice little button on it you know like they did very clear that 
no one's mad really. It's like a, a, it's a family squabble that happens all the time and it's no big deal. So it's never, nothing's ever as serious as what you think it would be. When things are disappointing and things go bad, your family can be there to perk you back up again. Although they never finished her thing with the Colonel. She met that one Colonel who had the cool Dalmatians running after his carriage. And they like introduce him and they're like, ooh, a possible love interest for Rose. But then they're like, nap, wrap this Warren Sheffield thing up. For at first, I did not recognize or realize um, that Warren Sheffield, the dude at the dance, was Warren Sheffield from the phone call. Like, I didn't connect that right away. So I'm like, oh, fuck that guy on the telephone. Like, obviously he's gone. I'm like, oh, wait, no, that's him. He's back. That little doofus. Warren went to Yale. Lon went to Princeton. How the frick did they know that one girl who's on the East Coast? Why do they both know Lucille Ballard? Why? Just realize that. Somebody in script writing did not catch that. Also, he was in New York and he's like, I'm at Delmonico's. And I was like, oh my God, like from Hello, Dolly. And they're like, we'll see the shows at Delmonico. Well, close right? Delmonico. Yes. Yes, that's where he was. So I was like, oh, that's so, so cute. Aww. I couldn't read my own writing. When the dad figures out his family is important, he strikes a match on his shoe and it looks really cool. But I was like, he lit a light and a light bulb went on over his head. Ooh, thanks for that. It burned really fast and the flame was very large and I got a little frightened. You're like, please, please put it out. Please put it out. And he did. Thank God. And then I wrote, there's no place like dot, dot, dot. St. Louis. <laughs> you have everything you need in your own backyard and with people you love. That's it. That's it. That's what we got. Oh, I do. We didn't talk about Margaret O'Brien enough in terms of like her life. So Margaret O'Brien was a child star. She became big two years before, which is why she got second billing because she was already a star. She was a star for a movie called Journey for Margaret. And she changed her name to Margaret O'Brien because her name was Angela. But that movie was such a hit that people kept calling her Margaret. So she just changed her name to Margaret. She won an Oscar for this. She was also in The Secret Garden and Little Women. She continues to act, but I don't think she was ever like a huge star as an adult. But I also want to mention June Lockhart was in this and she's like a TV mom. She was in Lassie and she was in Lost in Space because I saw her name and I was like, I know your name, June Lockhart. She's like a TV person and she she was in this movie and this was like a big thing in the start of her career. Um, but yeah, I did want to touch on Margaret O'Brien because I just thought that was yeah. interesting. Mary Astor is in this. She plays the mom. Mary Astor is a super famous lady. She was in the Maltese Falcon, mm. the Palm Beach Story, The Great Lie. And she did a lot of like earlier films. She was a big star. Lucille Bremer is who plays the sister. She didn't really do much. <laughs> She's cool. She was in a couple musicals, but she like didn't have a huge career. Neither did Tom Drake, who played um, Mr. Bourne. Marjorie Main, who is, she's a huge character actress. She was who played Katie. Oh, yeah. You know her from, I recognized like, the women, her. The Egg and I. There's no yeah. way that she doesn't have a very like illustrious career as a character actor. Like you, One line, you're oh, like, yeah. I know you. Her and then Leon Ames, who plays the dad. They were both character actors that were in like a billion mm-hmm. things. He's not as memorable as she is, but they were in so many movies. I mean, anybody who can deliver the line, cabbage has a cabbage smell as wonderfully as she did. Just, I love her. Oh, this is the line I loved. She's, uh, in the beginning, uh, they're talking about like making excuses for why they have to have dinner later. And Katie's like, here's my excuse. Uh, I have to go to my sister's house because she's having trouble with her husband. Him being a man. Ah, sassy pants. It's really funny. Okay, so yeah, I think we did it. We covered this movie. Do you have any final any final thoughts? This movie is just like a happy little basket of love. I think that it, I might have been more 
like rolling my eyes at it. Maybe if I watched it like at a different point in time, possibly, but I loved the optimism. I didn't find it too sweet. I thought it was a really good balance. Like, I think it's a really good example of a movie that is about family and quote unquote nothing can say a lot and be a lot and be a quality film. It's a good film, period. We're at the double feature portion of this podcast. Um, I personally would pair this with um, Easter Parade. That comes out a little later, 1948. Judy Garland was such a delight on set in general. Like, I know she's got a lot of stories about her with like, behavior due to drugs on set, but people liked working yeah. with her. Like they liked her as a person. Yeah. And so um, Fred Astaire came out of retirement to make that movie with yeah. her. He had retired, Gene Kelly was supposed to be in it. Gene Kelly hurt his ankle, I think, because he was playing volleyball. Oh, <laughs> so he couldn't do the movie. So Fred Astaire was like, I wanna work with Judy. I'm coming out of retirement for it. And he loved working with Aww. her. So Easter Parade, it's an old timey piece, really fun musical. I would also say Harvey Girls, same reason. Mm -hmm. Old timey piece, Really cheesy, but I love it. It's so much fun. Nice. Those would be my double feature recommendations. Zoe, do you have anything else you want to say before we go? No. I mean, I do think that a double feature, because it is so similar, in my view, would be You Can't Take It With You. I think that'd be a really good double feature. It's like two chapters of the same book. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to Talk Classic to Me. We'll see you next time. <laughs>